Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, April 14th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a changing of the guard at NASA, plus a new leader has also been named at a charity which specializes in helping those in the special forces. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is spearheading an international push to get software companies to make their technology secure by default. Within CISA, officials are trying to set a strong example for the rest of the federal government by baking security into the agency's applications from the get-go. For the latest on those efforts, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Deputy Associate Chief of Engineering for CISA's Chief Information Officer, Stephen Perskowski. How do we help the other divisions with their applications that they're using to support their mission, um, our enterprise comms, and then our internal business systems? Um, How do we help modernize them, make them secure so that we can leverage the best and the brightest that's out there in tech? You know, how how is that? kind of manifested so far uh, within CISA. Obviously, CISA is is the lead cyber agency for the U.S. government, so I assume you guys want to really set a standard for the rest of the U.S. government. OMB's got the secure software development guidance out there. How, how is CISA carrying that ball forward for your different divisions? So we, we actually help develop that. CSD's Office of the Technical Director, in my previous role, we were, I was engaged with them, still engaged with them on how the actual practitioner is doing like application security, how do we apply it to the development processes so that we can, I'll use the buzzword, shift security to the left. Like How do we bake security in? I know one of the big things that the agency has been pushing out is secure by default. How do we make that of our own internal applications and what we're releasing to the public to use? Um, how do we make sure that we are following those guides that we want everyone else to help follow so we can set the example of here's what we've done, how we've done it. So as agencies and the FSEB need help, here's how do we how we did it. Like just try it out before um, we go public with everything. Got it. So you're kind of sharing, you're going you're gonna to test out some best practices and share them more widely. Yeah. You know, is there anything in that specific lane to either watch out for or that you're already kind of working on as far as specific projects that you can talk about here today? So we're really trying to adopt that agile mindset with the DevSecOps culture or SecDevOps culture. They're interchangeable almost, but it's really adopting that mindset and that culture across the agency. So let's use all these as learning experiences. Where did like we fail, let's be open about how with our partners of this is what we've tried. It didn't necessarily work. We'll also talk about our successes. So we can all make it a team sport and really move that culture to be security focused, be security mindset, even if your primary role is not a security practitioner, so to speak. Like if you're a developer or if you're in contracts, this is why we need security. This is how we look at security and why it's important to all of us, why it's important to the government, the agency as a whole so we can move forward the initiatives and mission of the agency. And then another thing that I know you were working on was the stand-up of this community of practice at DHS around secure software development. Can you just talk about where that's at? Um, So we're moving forward. We meet quarterly across the department as a whole. So we've got several components um, very actively participating in that community where we're sharing ideas and really starting to make that more collaborative effort across the department as a whole to see where we can learn from each other, what some best practices, where we've stumbled in the past, how can we move forward from those, collaborating on technologies that we're using to better get to the end goal so that the ultimate goal is make sure 
our systems are secure where we can and how we address those risks, but also how do we enable our developers to move forward so that we can enable our the rest of our workforce to do what they need to do and focus on their missions versus a, oh, the system's down, we need to wait for it to be back up and being um, more customer focused with that. Like, How do we accomplish all those goals moving forward? We know it's in the software development guidance. Are, are there any emerging best practices that you'd want to highlight for folks as they think about secure software development in the federal government? So for thinking about secure software development, it's like looking at what is out there, really being collaborative and seeing what are the, like the, the main types of vulnerabilities out there. How do we address those in the development process so that we can build secure code. I know we've put out some guidance and working with our partners and, and uh, such to put out more guidance on how do we secure our, our supply chain. Um, that way then as we're building off of that supply chain on to into our development, so like looking at your third-party libraries, how do we address that? How do we assess the risk of our supply chain with building like in-house code or leveraging systems to do what we need them to do, looking at the whole chain from the vendors and how it goes through those processes, really working with our partners on that. Really, one of our primary focuses is SBOM. What is our software built out of? We've talked about it a lot. Um, I know RSA, we talked about it last year there. We've got some of the leading experts in that. Alan Feldman is one of those where we've really collaborated a lot internally with how do we build SBOMs, how do we help as we deploy things um, to our networks or release things publicly, what is our SBOM? Well, how do we adopt standards um, that are already out there and leverage them to um, not just like the FSEB, but anyone to understand what is the the risk of me using this thing internally on my systems? What is it made of so that as um, the MVD is updated with CVEs and such, I can track it down to where I need to update, what partners do I need to work with to make sure those things are updated? Because it's not just we can do it all. It's a, It's definitely a team sport. All right. Is there anything else that you'd want to highlight just about, you know, what you've learned over the past nine months, a year, or anything going forward? Well, as we start to adopt those modern methodologies, such as DevSecOps, Agile, really becoming more security-focused, building secure, it's a large culture change that it's really working with everyone, making it that team sport. It's, It's not just security's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. How do we help educate everyone? Um, Really, it's our, our workforce and our, our partners are like our key to being able to adopt those new culture methodologies and really drive the change forward and before thinking forward leaning um, to move towards the bleeding edge and the cutting edge type of technologies and adopt them securely as there's lots of things out there. That's Stephen Perskowski, Deputy Associate Chief of Engineering for CISA's CIO office, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, a changing of the guard at NASA. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. At the end of April, a longtime NASA official will be stepping down from a prominent posting. Catherine Leaders will be retiring from the agency after 31 years. Her current position of Associate Administrator of NASA's Space Operations Mission Directorate obviously has a big role to play in the space agency's future plans, which is why her successor has already been named. I had the chance to discuss that with her, but we first got started by getting to know a little bit about her past and the road she took to get where she is today. So I made my way through a couple of different NASA centers, uh, starting out at White Sands, which is actually a 
kind of a test facility in support of Johnson Space Center. I got to work fixing hardware on the shuttle program and then moved into the station program, did various positions there. My last fun thing I got to do there was to actually bring cargo on commercial vehicles back to and transporting cargo to the ISS. So, um, and then moved to program manager for the commercial crew program. From there, got the opportunity to actually be AA over all of human spaceflight for about a year and a half. And then the job was really big. <laughs> so we ended up moving into an exploration development organization and a space ops organization. And I don't know about you, but operating in space is one of the funnest things. And so I am now overseeing really all the operations that are currently in LEO, supporting also launch services, supporting our major communication networks, all the crew support capabilities that ensure that we've got crews ready to go for both our Artemis missions and our ongoing ISS missions. And so I'll tell you, I feel like this is the best job in the agency right now. We have tons of missions that occur every year and we get to do them. Yeah, I've, I was going to say, it sounds like you were busy and almost busier over the last uh, five years, especially. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uptick in, you know, in talking with folks uh, in this industry? You know, the fact that there's a, almost like a launch monthly that they're all paying attention mm. to is just something that has probably changed for you, has it not? Yeah, I mean, I think really starting, you know, when we were doing just the cargo vehicles to the International Space Station, we typically had even at that time, between three to five cargo vehicles providing cargo up. And then you start, since 2020, we started to add then two commercial crew vehicles going to the USOS side of the space station. And then we add the commercial missions that are crewed missions that are also going up. So what's really great is the International Space Station right now is one of the busiest places that we have providing science research crew opportunities to not only our government agencies, but also access to research facilities in the U.S. and around the world and also businesses in and around the world. We have 24 commercial facilities on station now that are enabling our industry partners to really figure out how to do business in space. And that's going to be very critical for us going forward because after shuttle station retirement in 2030, and we're looking to transition to actually buying low earth orbit services on commercial LEO destinations. So it's a very critical time for us to continue to learn how to operate in space so that when we're buying capabilities in the future, we have people that have practiced in space and can actually continue to provide those capabilities, not only to us, but our other agency partners and also to other industry partners that are out there. It's an opportunity for the U.S. to continue to lead in low earth. 
You provided a perfect segue for me for my next question. Uh, current NASA Administrator Bill Nelson commemorated you when you announced your retirement for really championing the public-private commercial partnerships that are there now for low Earth orbit. Can you talk a little bit about what those early days were like in bringing in more commercial partners? You know, what were some of the challenges, but also what were some of the – you just mentioned some of the, the, the pros to having more commercial partners deal in your missions. Can you just describe that a little bit for me and how that came about? Well, you know, when we first began to really look at the late 2000s, looking at the challenge of how we're going to maintain science and research capabilities on the International Space Station after shuttle retirement, because shuttle had been our big workhorse, you know, carrying up payloads for us. And so we had to then envision how do we fill that gap? And so that was really when, and I'll say at the time, this was a bit of a Hail Mary pass. I use that term because we didn't have established cargo capabilities at the time. And um, what's great about the way we went out with a contract was we really tried to get as close to a commercial contract as possible, understanding that you still had to do it under the FAR because we're a government agency. But that enabled the companies to use their ingenuity to be able to come in with a solution for us to provide cargo. And we had to accept some risk with that. We had both cargo providers actually failed a mission within the first three or four years. But when you look at the hundreds of thousands of pounds of cargo that we've gotten up over the last 14 years, And the fact that that particular change enabled us to, for the first time, get cargo returned from the International Space Station. We weren't able to do that with government capabilities that we had, international capabilities that we had, and also powered cargo up and down, which was also a capability that we were not able to get with our international government partners. And so I'll say it's a real credit to the U.S. industry that they were able to step up. And it's, I'm very proud that the agency also was able to stand by them as they work through failures and then be able to recover. And, and both recovered within a year and were flying cargo back to the International Space Station after those failures. And so real credit to the U.S. industry. And honestly, we would not have the station we had today if they weren't able to do that. Obviously, moving into crew, it's a we in the same way we try to keep our contract instrument as flexible as possible to enable their capability. I'm very proud of the fact that the way we did the contract, even though we did a fixed price contract, both contracts that we have with Boeing and SpaceX have less than 30 changes on those contracts. We just are finishing up our 24th change on a Boeing contract after being having a contract with Boeing for seven years. Um, there's an efficiency there from a contracting perspective and management perspective with these types of industry contracts and being very thoughtful about how you do the contract that enables them to have their innovation but at the same time also brings the the cost of that capability down to us. It takes a lot of work on both sides to be able to do this right. 
Yeah, what do you make of the exponential growth in the U.S. space industry itself? And has your Rolodex grown with that exponential growth? Has it coincided with how many contacts you have now uh, in the industry? <laughs> well, I think I think what's been amazing about it was just this one change in how we bought the capability that enabled companies then to be able to use that capability to create opportunities for other companies. You know, we just really changed how we were getting something that we needed. And what we did from a government perspective was actually allowed the companies to own the IP. Typically, we would have owned all the intellectual property ourselves. We would have kept it all. Then it would have only been able to be provided to just NASA and even other, we don't typically provide them that capability to the Air Force or, you know, Space Force or other folks. So it was the fact that we did these as these commercial contracts and allowed them to actually provide a service, but also be able to team with other partners that created an amplification benefit and allowed other companies to be able to recognize that they could partner and create industries with these emerging companies and allowed each of the companies that we contracted with for services to create opportunities for themselves and for other people. And so there are tons of ride shares that go up on every single cargo vehicle going up that enable research, university partnerships, other industry partnerships, just because we bought the ride and other people are able to get, you know, incremental benefit off of that. That is huge. We are still getting a great price <laughs> on our services, but we said, okay, we are okay with you getting benefit out of it. And that's caused this ripple effect through industry, which has really, to me, driven people seeing opportunities then, where before, if we would have bought our capabilities in the traditional way, it would have been more of a dead end. Your replacement, uh, Ken Bowersox, has been announced already upon your retirement. What notes are you leaving for him uh, on your way out? (laughs) Well, I will tell you, when I was starting to think about retiring, one of the requests I had was that Ken take over. Because there's nothing that makes you feel better than to know that your replacement for your team, and for me, it's always this team will always be my team, (laughs) is going to have just such a great leader taking over. It makes you, it's what helps me sleep at night. So Ken's got a ton of experience. I worked with Ken in different roles in the shuttle program. I actually worked with him when he was working for SpaceX. He and I were both there at the very beginning of the cargo work, and I'd worked with him when he was there at the time. And I'd obviously interacted with him when he was in his HEO-NAC role. And then over the last multiple years, he's been a stalwart leader, obviously supporting Mr. Gerstemeyer before, Mr. Levero, and then honestly was there for me when I came in as HEO-AA. So I know that I'm leaving this great mission directorate in great hands. And I know that the leadership in this mission directorate is going to be doing even more with the platforms we have and coming up with even more innovations 
that are going to be pushing not only this agency forward, but I feel like this nation forward and providing benefits to our international partners and the world with what we're doing. Catherine Leaders is the outgoing associate administrator of NASA's Space Operations Mission Directorate. There's more to this interview. You can hear the full version on the upcoming episode of The Space Hour on April 24th. Still to come on Federal News Network, USCIS, Millennium Challenge Corporation, show there is no one path towards zero trust. But first, a new leader has also been named at a charity which specializes in helping those in the special forces. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Green Beret Foundation, which provides U.S. Army Special Forces soldiers with ongoing support as a new president and chief executive officer. This won't be Charlie Iacono's first role in a position to help service members and veterans, as he formerly held a senior position with the USO. I recently got the chance to speak with Charlie to find out more about his new mission, as well as that of the Green Beret Foundation. The Green Beret Foundation is a small foundation, but incredibly mighty organization, as I like to characterize it. Uh, we are the premier not-for-profit organization, community impact organization for those who are Green Berets, uh, both former, past Green Berets, current active duty, uh, as well as future. Uh, and then I always like to talk about uh, the importance that we are also inclusive of family members. So we have, you know, really kind of an an outlook on we have to care for the entire community and very much part of that community is 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 those that are left home and our green berets are deployed overseas and downrange and you know our programs range from casualty support health and wellness support which i like to classify as mental uh, health resiliency and uh, family support you know if, if family members are struggling uh, children need support we have a very comprehensive family support program and then, of course, we have our next Ridgeline program, which is our traditional transition support. So when active duty uh, service members are beginning to transition out of the military after their distinguished service and career, uh, we help them find that next Ridgeline, which will look and possibly be something entirely different than from what they're used to doing. And so we want to really focus on really the holistic aspect of the individual, both the Green Beret and their family. And then, of course, we have our Gold Star and Surviving Families program that we are, are very fortunate and honored. It's a sacred program. It's a program, obviously, just like our casualty support program, that we hope that the utilization of, of those programs are low, but we, we nevertheless prepare ourselves to address any kind of crisis that we could, could be occurring or could be um, could be happening within the community, both family and service member. Yeah, I wanted to focus on the transition aspect just because uh, from a special forces standpoint, is it safe to say that there's no different, there's no more different transition than for the folks who are serving in the special forces to going into civilian life? You know, obviously veteran transition is difficult for everyone, but uh, but for special forces specifically, just because their skill set is so unique, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, no, I, it, that is a fantastic question, and it's, it's a great observation. We are very fortunate at the foundation. Uh, kind of our, our motto of our transitions program is from team room to boardroom, and we really help Green Berets transitions, transition from the active duty space to their next great adventure. And, and you know, you couldn't have said it better, Eric. Th- these, are, these are service members that are so highly trained and very specialized aspects of, of warfare and we recognize now, having been in the nonprofit space for, for 20 plus years, 
and obviously having a lot of friends in the, the corporate space, these are incredible assets to bring into an organization. And really our job at the foundation is not only to help them navigate their VA and benefit claims program benefits, but really to begin to have conversations with them early on to say, what do you want your next chapter to be? What do you want it to look like? Do you want it to be challenging or just as challenging as, as, as your time as an FS soldier was? Or do you want to look to something that, you know, really feeds kind of your passion in your life? Again, it kind of gets back to that mentality um, that we spend so much time talking about at the foundation and, and our incredible uh, leaders at the board of directors uh, speak about really caring for the, the holistic um, mindset of, of both mind, body, and spirit and making sure that when they transition into that next career and that next chapter, that they are not only readily equipped for that next ridgeline, but they're also given the opportunity to, to really evaluate what they want to do. And we recognize that this could be a very bumpy chapter in their, their life story. Um, and we, we work tirelessly at the foundation to kind of smooth that pathway um, to the best of our abilities. And we leverage a diverse group of veteran organizations that uh, work specifically in select areas. I'm really excited to talk about, in my chapter uh, being here at the foundation, really bringing the transitions program to the next level and working with some of our, our largest uh, defense contracting companies uh, here in the United States and making sure that we build a diverse portfolio of partners that no, not only have incredible job opportunities and career opportunities for these service members, but really, you know, diversify our portfolio of interest. So when we go to, to chat with the next uh, Green Beret about their transition, they see the value add the Green Beret Foundation brings to their, their chapter and their career search. The other focus that I wanted to touch on, and obviously, once again, being a family member of any active service member has challenges for across the board. But are there, what are the unique challenges for those who are related to those in the special forces? Just because, you know, I, I imagine that a, there's a level of secrecy of, you know, what they're allowed to discuss with their family and that can bring its own challenges. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think having never served myself, but having had a number of family members uh, from past generations and, and cousins that have served and close friends that have served, the challenges that are encountered for family members, I think, is an incredible weight that they carry on their shoulders, uh, whether it's a five-year-old son or daughter uh, or an 18-year-old son or daughter that's kind of navigating their transition from high school to maybe college or maybe entering the service themselves. And then, you know, the spouses, there's, there's a weight on their shoulders that is really hard to describe unless you have experienced it yourself. Then to layer on top of that, uh, being a spouse or a family of a, an SF um, service member, specifically the Green Berets, is, is also very challenging and trying. Um, I like to explain it that the, the emotional energy uh, and the complexity of, of navigating that relationship is, is, has to be one of the hardest uh, experiences a spouse or a child uh, will encounter. But we also see the grace in that and the fact that it, it, they are a support mechanism to the Green Berets. Um, and obviously they are uh, thinking about their loved ones uh, when they're deployed. And obviously those that are left behind and, and, and you know, anxiously awaiting their return are, are thinking about them and praying for them. And I think one of the most incredible things the foundation does is, is we support the family in that. From beginning to end, we look at the, the need to be there as an asset, um, as a, um, an additional team member in their support circle. You know, we're going to really begin to focus in, in my tenure as the president and CEO to 
ensuring that our programs uh, not only meet the current needs of family members in Green Berets, but the future needs and what those needs might be. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of exploratory discovery phase conversations and interviews with, with those who are in our community because we want this foundation to be representative of not only the incredible community and the storied history of, of the Green Berets, but really that next generation too, uh, because we don't know what the next global conflict will look like. We don't know what the needs will be for those returning Green Berets, but I, I'm a big believer in the fact that you have to plan and uh, orient your organization to be able to execute on when those needs are identified. And, you know, the, the, your point or your question of not being able to share things and, and understanding the complexities of that, that also has to be a weight on their shoulders. But, you know, I, I have to say, you know, some of the strongest people I know uh, are military spouses, some of the strongest and most uh, incredibly gifted young children and young, young teenagers and young adults are children of service members, uh, both SF uh, through, from the SF community, as well as other branches of the military. The United States military not only safeguards our freedoms here at home uh, and overseas and, and really are, is the defender of, of freedom and democracy across the globe, but I also like to say that the United States military builds that next generation of leaders. And, and so many of those leaders are found in the, the military families and spouses. And uh, we are just really privileged and honored to work with them at the Green Beret Foundation. Charlie Iacono is the newly appointed president and CEO of the Green Beret Foundation. To find this interview, along with more information about the organization, you can go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, USCIS, Millennium Challenge Corporation, show there is no one path towards zero trust. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom. The U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and the Millennium Challenge Corporation epitomize just how different each agency's journey is to a zero-trust architecture. While both have a majority of applications in the cloud, the similarities to reach the same end goal stop there. During a recent ATARC panel, moderated by Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller, Shane Barney, the chief information security officer at USCIS, and Miguel Adams, the CISO for MCC, discuss their steps on their zero-trust journey. First, you hear from USCIS's Shane Barney. Really, the big push right now is to how we do that automation, how we integrate the, the SOC and actually other teams within that automation portfolio. And, it, and it's much bigger, more expansive than just the SOC. I've always been a fan. Security programs are a security program. Therefore, when you talk about automation, you should talk about your security automation, which involves your entire security program. So it should be your risk, your governance, how you do documentation, all of that. So the big push right now is for us to leverage some of these, these newer frameworks that have come out that are allowing us to do, like, for example, automation of all of our documentation. I find it ridiculous that we do PDF files for security plans. I find absolutely no value in that. So we're automating that. We're automating the way that the dev teams communicate and, and how that, that, that communication then translates into documentation for our security plans or for updates to how we do things. So it, it's a big challenge. It's a big, it's a big undertaking. When I first started proposing it, my teams thought I was absolutely insane, which I probably sort of am. But the reality is, is that in the modern cyber world, you know, you, you heard how many incidences were faced. I know how many on my agency has faced since last year, and I know how some of them are really significant. And, and matter of fact, we're not, nobody's taking time off in December. We've actually, December's officially ruled as everybody comes to work because something <laughs> bad's going to happen. 
and you know we we just it's the way we it's the new world that we live in so it, we have to get to the point where threat and threat focused is the where you're doing threat hunting as a continual process of your cybersecurity program we can no longer just rely on a check box you know checkbox security is is just it should have died a long time ago. It's still around. It's still with us, but uh, we're, we're trying to kill it off as quickly as possible. That was good. That was good. All right. Quick follow-up for you, of course, is when we talk about automation, does it change the business process? Because, because again, it's that old, are you just automating bad processes, or are you also improving the process itself to say, what, what data are we pulling? How is that data useful and the like? No, that's a great question. And, and there's two different ways we approach automation. Sometimes we're automating things that have never been done. There's really no business practice wrapped around it because it's either new or, or different or, or somehow we're changing up things. So it makes it actually a little easier. When we're faced with existing business processes, we'll often model the existing business process with the automation. Lots of reasons for doing it that way. We've done it a couple different ways, but what we found by modeling the existing business process, one, it kind of helps us find and figure out what exactly it is we're after. It's not, when you're talking about efficiency, it's not the most efficient way by any stretches of the imagination, but we sort of iterate towards perfection, which of course we've never achieved, but there's a theory behind that. And so really, it's the, once we get the business process down, then we can start looking at it and going holistically and saying, well, this doesn't make any sense anymore. We are doing this based on outdated technology or outdated you know, policy. We can remove that or we can streamline this. And we find that that process, it's not quite as efficient necessarily, but it actually is very effective. Um, and it helps us find things that we maybe not we weren't even aware of that we were doing or should be doing. So it's sort of a split of both. All right. Thank you, Shane. Miguel from the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Yeah. Well, well. first, uh, thank you, ATARC, for inviting me and for allowing me to share my thoughts. And, and he used to work with CIS. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, we worked together, yeah. <laughs> so I hope I'm not too disappointed in your in my response, but what we're doing and what I'm taking advantage of is, is teaching, collaborating, and moving forward with an education program to the uh, agency. And that's and the reason I'm doing this is I want a value proposition. We talked a little bit about earlier the moderators talked about collaborating and how this is for the, for the customer. And this is exactly, if I don't get the customers on board, if I don't get their understanding, the program is going to be difficult to implement. And so I am taking time to go out to departments and divisions, teaching them the, the vernacular, teaching them what zero trust is, why we need to do this, and the benefits, I hope, the value proposition of what it could translate to them. Uh, we travel a lot in the agency, and we've been, our endpoints have been hardened for some time now. But our infrastructure now, the castle, moat, you know, everything, we're a young agency compared to most other. We're, we're 20 years. We're going to celebrate 20 years soon. So we're not there yet. And most everything we have is in the cloud. So um, that's what we're doing. I'm also taking time to, to uh, it, within the office of CIO, teach and collaborate with our, our business partners in there, for example, our, our infrastructure team, our, our development team, and so that we could all understand the same language of what zero trust is. It's, it's a new, I take it as a new uh, endeavor for, for the agency, and, and I, I hate to date myself, but I remember putting out my first land, and it was, it was a difficult uh, challenge uh, back then for the business process. If we don't do this with our, with our uh, with our customers, they're going to probably have a little 
reluctance into, and, and they'll find other ways to do things that they find easier. So that's what we're doing. All right. I have a quick follow-up. I was moderating a, a different panel. Sure. I, I do other panels. And one of the things that we expected to talk all about, well, where are you with your zero trust journey and why zero trust is important and how are you dealing with micro-segmentation and all these fun things. And the discussion ended up really all about the user experience. And everybody on the panel is both industry and government were saying, you got to get that right. If, you're, if, you, if you don't get the user experience right, what's the point? Is, is that really what's behind your education a little bit? And, and maybe how are you ensuring that user experience is, is, is right? That's a great question. So zero trust is a, you know, it's a change. It's a change from implicit to explicit access control. And so we all know this. But to do that, so our data is now released to, to an individual with certain at the time of day, the activity-based uh, access control. We have implicit zones that we're going to implement, and the, the users need to understand that they're not going to have access to everything at one time. And if, if that's going to be a big change, guys. I mean, that for me, my agency, we implement access control from the user level. The, somebody will go in there and they'll, they'll do the SharePoint permissions and everything else. But uh, it goes beyond that. And so... Data categorization for us is, is really starting out, uh, and we want the metadata behind that so that this process is automated. And, and, it's, and we're gonna, you know, it's, there's going to be some pain in there because we're not going to get the policy right the first time. And so if the users don't understand why we're doing this and, and how we're moving this forward, then I think we're going to have a, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So, yeah, exactly. Machine identity is a, is a huge deal. Maybe talk a little bit about how you all think about that security side of it. I mean, we have 22, 25,000 users, I think, growing every day. And, and so the, the, and there's, there tends to be this focus on users, like that's the only problem. I have 150,000 endpoints, which is the bigger problem. It's the endpoints. The endpoints are far more difficult, and we've never really applied structured identity to them. Um, and, and so to do that at scale, and especially at speed, when you're talking cloud environments, you, you're going to have to automate that. So having cert automation is like a forefront building block to all things that you do in this space. And it's also the thing that most organizations lack. Shane Barney is the Chief Information Security Officer at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And Miguel Adams is the CISO from the Millennium Challenge Corporation. You can hear more of this panel at federalnewsnetwork.com. Search Ask the CIO. For the Army, the Pacific is a tough information technology environment. Combat operations there would mean dealing with multiple logistics chains that are thousands of miles long and formations and staff distributed across vast areas. Officials think hybrid cloud architectures are a big part of the solution, and they're testing them now. Colonel Liz Casely is the CIO for the Army's First Corps. She talked about some of the challenges with Jared Serbu during Federal News Network's DOD Cloud Exchange. So this presents a huge problem for us to employ the network as it's designed to function with the doctrinal system of a core main tack and rear. We need a global WAN architecture that is not regionally aligned, so it's regionally agnostic and globally available. The ability for us to have transport network that allows us to distribute data, that's the heart and soul of moving, moving data around, right? What we do with that data, how we organize it, et cetera, actually requires a transport network to deliver it uh, to the right place so that you can 
make a decision, and then implement execution of that decision. That's incredibly important. So, so this is centered around collaboration and mission command information systems, but it really is the services and the collaboration architecture that's required in order for this distribution to be effective. Uh, so the distribution of our mission command service infrastructure, one, which un starts to uncouple hardware and software and this very tightly nested uh, servant client infrastructure that we're largely used to using proximity in order to reduce the amount of latency, right? So the server and client can talk to each other. That's a challenge in the Pacific because when we're talking about distributing, we're not talking about just a few hundred um, meters away. We're talking thousands of miles, different land masses, oceans. But secondly, what we've discovered is that we don't have enough people, technicians, or server client architecture to go around that will actually help us employ in this way. And so this idea leads us to employing tactical cloud or just cloud architectures that are multi-hybrid cloud environments. So multi meaning multiple cloud vendors, public private clouds, could be uh, internal cloud to first core. It could be public cloud environments that are set up by cloud service providers. The second piece of it would be hybrid. And this is incredibly important because this allows us to be able to connect into this environment with on-prem architecture. And the idea here is that it mitigates against DDIL environments. So this, the mitigation of this DDIL environment comes with, again, task organizing, purpose building, by mission and available resources, what you need to have on-premise with you if at some point in time you are connected disconnected from your uh, transport network. Colonel Casely, can you talk in maybe just a little bit more specific detail on the cloud experimentation that's actually been happening in the Pacific? Tell me a bit about the specific projects that you've been working on, the specific pilots, and anything that you've learned from those so far. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about all the things that uh, First Corps is doing to enable distributed command and control. So First Corps, under General Brunson's guidance, as his number one priorities to stand up a data warfare team. The idea here is to now start to move towards machine to machine or potentially um, machine with limited human in enabling uh, decision making speed. So we start first with a phase one. Phase one included a data, data readiness level assessment. We sort of already knew that where we were towards um, some digital, but mostly analog processes. And we captured that during our warfighter back in September. The second phase now is to do an internal call for talent, uh, take a look at um, some of the talent that is resident within First Corps uh, that could potentially be a part of this team, get those folks trained. So we have a, a training pipeline that we're developing, um, develop the metrics by which we're assessing uh, and then continuing to refine the team and then also develop our user stories. So we have some user stories or epics, folks call them, um, along the logistics um, line of effort. And then also in a, I would say, probably closing the kill chain line of effort, but really heavily focused on assessments and how we do our assessments process inside the core to inform Intel collection uh, that goes very quickly inside of a targeting uh, working group to inform targeting and fires for future operations in a more dynamic machine-to-machine -machine way, as opposed to um, uh, this very um, static legacy 
analog way that we've been doing business that requires a lot of staff hours and manual labor. I, I do want to do one quick follow-up. Uh, th- there's a lot there that we can't follow up on everything you just said, but I, I, l- l- let me pick just one, which is some of the LOEs that you mentioned around that, that involve moving from analog to digital processes. For people who have not been in these formations, which is most of us, can you spend a minute maybe giving us an example or two of some of those processes that you are working to automate? What does that look like in the real world? Yeah, certainly. If you take your intelligence collection process that occurs, right? There's multiple sources from which you're drawing data in order to align your Intel collection piece, which really informs operations and moves into what we would call a targeting sort of working group to sort of talk about, hey, what things are we collecting intelligence on and where might we find targets? That goes into a decision board. You know, you'll go into a fires process And then from there, you'll have to do some sort of analysis of um, battle damage. And then that goes largely into an assessment. So think about all these different processes that are occurring in intelligence, which has its own stovepipe data sources that kind of come together in one sort of structure. Then you're moving this into a decision space to talk about what things you might target. When you move that from targeting and you move it into fires, I think there's a fairly tightly coupled structure there, but it does require data to be structured in a way that allows the machines to understand it. But then when you move that back into battle damage assessment and then an assessment working group, which is, okay, what things did we target? Did we hit them? So, you know, did we perform the task we asked ourselves that we wanted to perform? And then what are the measures of effectiveness aligned against our mission? Some of these processes are occurring inside of folks' brains. You know, there's sort of an algorithm that's happening inside of your brain And then you're trying to display it in a two-dimensional way on a flat file and a piece of paper requires a voice over for folks to understand, here's what we collected on, here's what we targeted, here's what we fired, here's how well we accomplished our firing mission, and then here's the assessment on what we should do next. That requires multiple staff sections to come together that are now distributed across the Pacific You need collaboration tools in order for you to exchange information on what's happening inside your brain. There is technology available to build a data structure that actually allows that process to occur faster without all this manual staff processing and putting it into a way to display it. Largely, we have the tools right now inside of FirstCore to display decisions or display outcomes or display information in a way that says, oh, aha, I see that, here is another opportunity. So now what you're following is this very um, linear sort of logical path, whereas commanders can actually come in, look at something that is driven by like readily present on-time data and say, hey, I want to make a different decision at this time and I want to make it sooner than I would normally make it. If you don't have that machine-to-machine connection to inform that sort of fast and quick dynamic sort of cycle, then you're largely left to How long does it take for me to translate this onto a PowerPoint or a PDF slide or into a Word document or send it in a chat for someone to understand what I'm talking about, make a decision for us to collaborate, and then get it into the normal process that you use? And that that is what we're seeing. We're seeing how slow that is. We can't react to things that are happening dynamically as fast as we would like. We also are allowing what we call data to drop on the floor because information is coming in. And then we're not able, we don't have a process or a tool or the talent to pull that data in into a structured environment and then display it to say, hey, new information has come in that potentially changes the decision that you just made hours ago. 
That's Colonel Liz Casely, the CIO for the Army's First Corps, talking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu during Federal News Network's DOD Cloud Exchange. For the full conversation, go to federalnewsnetwork.com, subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White, filling in for Tom.